Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number four. And today we're really going to dive into the practical N equals one side of things with Dr. Sean Baker, MD, who's been setting world records while consuming an all meat diet for the last year. In this episode, Dr. Sean's going to talk about his background in elite sports over the years, his experimentation with traditional diets, low carb, keto, and eventually an all meat diet. He'll discuss traditional populations who ate a largely meat, although not exclusively meat and fat based diet. He'll also touch on the impact of electrolytes, how he's avoiding scurvy without consuming any fruits and vegetables, and of course, most importantly, how he's breaking athletic records on the Concept 2 rower in heavily glycolytic events with zero carbohydrates. I know what you're thinking, this sounds crazy, but I think as a coach or practitioner, you know, if an athlete or client is achieving success with a novel method, it's really important to try and observe and tease out the why. What might be some of the areas of benefits? Where might be some areas of potential drawback? I know this episode will challenge a lot of beliefs, and I think being uncomfortable in challenge is a good thing. Okay, if you're new to the podcast, be sure to check out the first three episodes of Season 2 on Weight Loss with Danny Lemon, on The Art of Sports Science with Dr. Fergus Connolly, and on Vitamin D with Brian St. Pierre. Of course, if you'd like to get caught up on all the great content from Season 1, then please check out my Best of 2017 show, which is Episode number 52 of Season 1. Also, don't forget, you can check out my layups and performance tips from this episode at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And finally, before we get started, a quick word from our new sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water, collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean. Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is highly bioavailable and has been shown in research to enhance stamina by stabilizing blood glucose levels during exercise, as well as strengthening immunity by buffering exercise-induced reductions in key immune markers. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, fantastic. Let's get things rolling here. Season two, episode number four on the carnivore diet. And if you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Dr. Sean Baker. Dr. Baker is an orthopedic surgeon, a former rugby player, powerlifter, and record world record holder in indoor rowing, as well as a carnivore diet advocate. Dr. Sean, thanks so much for taking the time today. Hey, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, listen, no problem. I started following you a few years ago on Twitter, you know, the athletic feeds, the, the world records, and the concept to rower. Can we start things off here by maybe you talking a little bit more about your athletic background? Yeah, so I, I've had kind of a mix of, of a number of different sports over the years. I actually started out as a, as a cross-country runner in high school, and, you know, it was very, very thin. I uh, wasn't very good at it, never really enjoyed it very much. Then I kind of transitioned into, you know, uh, a little bit of weightlifting as a kid, you know, got a little, little size on. Um, by the time I got through college, uh, I took up rugby, and I was playing, I remember, in medical school, actually, and I ended up you know, being fairly decent at it, got recruited to go to New Zealand to play for a team, one of their premier leagues. And so I did that for a while, came back, you know, played with a bunch of, on a bunch of representative teams on the U.S. Um, then I got into powerlifting and I did that for, you know, off and on for about two decades. I ended up, uh, you know, setting some records in the deadlift. I was, I had tall, tall, I was tall with long arms and long legs. So I wasn't much of a bench presser or a squatter, but I could deadlift pretty decent. So I got up to, a 350 kilo deadlift. Um, nice. That's uh, 772 pounds for, for people who can't do the conversion. But uh, and that was all drug free stuff. I, I've always been a, a drug free athlete. And then uh, 
I went from powerlifting and then I did some of the strongman stuff. I did that for a couple of years, had fun with that. You know, I competed, you know, uh, for, for about two years and, and had a good time. Did, did reasonably well in that. Um, but just, uh, you know, I'm just not, not big enough for that sport. You know, I'm, I was about six, five, two eighty, but uh, you know, I think, you know, these days you have to be another 50 to 70 pounds bigger to, to, to succeed at that. And yeah, again, incredible. there's a, there's an issue of a lot of drug usage, which I wasn't willing to, willing to do. So I left strongman. I took up, um, throwing, I got involved in the Highland games. I did that for about six or seven years. I won a Masters World Championships in that. You know, it's the Highland Games. For those that don't know, is is just a sport where we do a lot of three. You know, it's kind of shot put type events with natural stones. You know, weights that you throw that are up to 56 pounds with one hand, uh, throwing cabers and hammers and stuff like that. So that's a, that's a fun sport. You know, I had no throwing background whatsoever, and you know, I think the only thing that allowed me to, to do well was just that I was, you know, still strong and athletic and, you know, had a, had a pretty good work ethic. Trained with some, I trained with a number of world champions in the sports of that health. And I also, I dabbled a little bit in track and field. I trained with a guy named John Godina, who was a, a multi-time uh, world champion athlete in the shot put in discus. And so he was a good one to train with. And then um, I guess in my mid forties, after I got done, you know, doing all the heavy type stuff, I, I kind of, got into more of an endurance, you know, base activity. So I took up the concept to rower. Uh, I've been doing that about, I guess it's about three and a half years now. I uh, just, I, I turned 51 next week and I've been able to break a bunch of the U S records and then several of the world records on that for the more of the sprint type distances. And that, so that's, that's incredible. That's what my focus is, is currently. So hopefully I'm, I'm going to, I'm primed to break some more world records on it. Probably hopefully in the next, few weeks to, to, to month or so. I think that's where I'm at right now. And at what point did you evolve into, uh, you know, back in when you were playing these sports, was it more of a traditional diet? And then at what point did you start evolving into whether it was low carb keto or now in terms of, you know, kind of all meat, zero yeah, carb I mean, diet? Yeah. So in my sort of my mid forties, you know, I was still training really hard. You know, I, I was, I mistakenly believed that you, you know, as long as you trained as hard as, you know, train hard, you could eat whatever you want. And I found that not to be true after, you know, after I got into my 40s, basically, and I started developing signs of, um, you know, metabolic syndrome, I was, you know, I, I had weight on that I did, wasn't coming off. I had, uh, um, yeah, I had, I remember when I turned 40, I said, I'm going to get, I'm going to get lean, get some ab, you know, be a little vain and get some ab muscle, but it never happened because I never changed my diet. Gotcha. That didn't happen until I got into my almost, almost to 50. But, but, you know, back then I was, you know, my blood pressure was a little high, you know, I was probably developing sleep apnea, you know, I was still about 280 pounds back then so i was still a big guy i wasn't you know no one, no one would call me obese but i wasn't you know really lean either you know I was okay. a big strong guy um you know energy was low having trouble you know with with uh, uh sleeping well stuff like that so that's that's when i decided to look into diet you know prior to that i kind of just was thinking that you know you can eat whatever you want as long as you train hard and and and, and uh so i played with you know the first thing i did was was i went on a real kind of low calorie diet a lot of fruits and vegetables, you know, a little bit of fish. It was it was almost kind of a vegetarianist diet, and I, you know, I, I ramped up my training. I probably some days I was training three times a week. I remember I was doing just a ton of jumping rope, you know, thousands of jump ropes a day with workouts, you know, and, and just cutting my calories massively. And I lost weight for sure. I got a little leaner, but that you know clearly wasn't sustainable for me. It wasn't enjoyable. I was pretty, you know pretty grouchy guy at that point but say I like recovery wise and things like that yeah yeah i mean it's you know that, that hypochlo you know that spending a lot of time in a, in a sort of calorie deficit is is you know not a long-term prescription for success and so i transitioned away from that into into more of a paleo diet i did that for about a year i had fun with that then i then I, you know i started reading more about the kind of the low carb you know, literature, read, read some of the books out there, experiment with that, continue to have more success, transitioned to keto, which I did for about about two years and did it pretty successfully. And, and, and while I was doing that, I noticed, you know, significant improvements in, you know, clinical signs of health, you know, uh, my blood pressure normalized, uh, you know, uh, joints started feeling better, you know, things like that, mood got better, energy was better. And then finally, I just transitioned over to, to a fully carnivorous diet and, and just noted you know, even more improvements. And that's, that's kind of where I've been now. I've been doing, you know, this fully carnivorous diet now just for over a year. I, I passed that mark this December. So I'm, I'm in my second year of that now doing, doing very well with it. 
Wow, and that's effectively all all meat, virtually zero carbohydrate. What else is? Uh, can, can you kind of roughly give us an idea of what's in the diet for you? Yeah, I mean, I'll, the diet in general is you know it's it's heavily you know meat based. You know, so it's usually some sort of you know most people it's beef, but a lot of people will do lamb. Uh, you know, that some people add chicken, fish. I occasionally have a little seafood, you know, typically shrimp. I, I, the farther I've gone, you know, when I first started, I had a little more variety. I would I would rotate in quite a bit of salmon and shrimp and uh, a little more dairy and, you know, uh, stuff like that. But, but as I've gotten farther and farther into it, it's kind of, it seems counterintuitive, but the more you do it, you, you just sort of, your desire for just one thing kind of increases, which... I think a lot of people that, you know, they see that from the outside and they think it just sounds utterly bizarre. And it, and it would, would to me, too, if you had asked me a couple of years ago. But really what happens is I think you just find what works really well for you. And, and then you, you lose all these cravings for other foods and, you know, you, you just feel good. And so that's, you know, I'm, I, I, preference, I, pref, I preference feeling good and performing well over, you know, the desire to, to be entertained by my food. You know, I think food is a lot of us do it for entertainment purposes, and uh, you know that has its possibly its negative consequences. But yeah, that's that's pretty much it. You know, I mean, you can put a little seasoning on your food if you like it that way. Um, you know, eggs are fine. A lot of people, you know, eat eggs with this. The classic, like steak and eggs breakfast. I know that was a yeah. you know in the bodybuilding exactly. circles there, circa 50s, 60s. There was yeah, it Vince exactly. Aranda and that's, the likes. That's, yeah. That's, that's that's very similar to what this is. You know, a lot of steak, a lot of eggs for a lot of people, um, and then you know a little bit of dairy. Some people have trouble with dairy, so you just have to kind of uh, kind of play that by ear and see how it affects you. But it's very it's a very effective way at, at, at eliminating variables. I think a lot of people, you know, a lot you know much of what we consider you know aging or disease is probably you know signs of metabolic syndrome, and I think those things are affected by you know, our diet, clearly. I think our diet is, is, is impacting our health significantly. And if, if nothing else, this is a very good diet, a very good elimination diet to, to sort out those issues. You know, when you when you reduce your food to just one item, it becomes pretty clear, you know, once you reintroduce other foods, what, what, they, what their impact is on you. So it's a, you know, a nice thing about it. And there's a lot of people that do this for a couple months, and then they'll add back in, you know, something that they tolerate and do well. There's other people that, that feel so good this way, they just stay this way. And and, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm, you know, as long as I'm making progress and doing well, I'm going to stick to what I'm doing. It's not, I'm not wedded to this for the rest of my life. But, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you just kind of do what works. And, and as long as it's working, you don't need to change things. 100%. And, I mean, if we, if we think mechanisms, I mean, obviously, you know, increasing protein intake for a lot of people, potentially, like you mentioned, eliminating a lot of the processed foods got to just be a huge win as well for this type of eating pattern. Um, a massive increase in, in, in micronutrients with with red meat intake as well, and for a lot of people, obviously, I think you know achieving a caloric reduction with this would be, you know, another potential mechanism. Is there, you know, do you think all of the above are kind of contributing? What are your thoughts on on some of the underlying reasons yeah. why this can help so many people? Yeah, Mark, I think certainly any diet where you get rid of the garbage, you know, and, and you know we we can argue about what the garbage is, but I think clearly heavily sugared. Heavily refined, uh, you know, refined products, products that contain probably a lot of vegetable oils is, is not good for anybody. So whether you go on a vegetarian or vegan diet and eliminate that stuff or a paleo diet, you know, most people are going to notice a, a positive outcome from that alone. So I think that's part of it. I think, you know, again, meat is a, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not one that talks about superfoods, but, you know, meat is really a quality, you know, it's a quality uh you know, superfood. There you go. Yeah, it always gets left out from the superfood list, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it does. You know, it's been. You know, unfortunately, it's been demonized unfairly. And I think one of the things that I am seeing, you know, because we have this carnivore community growing, and what we're seeing is, you know, not what we're being told about meat, where it causes diabetes and high blood pressure and all these other things. We're seeing the exact opposite happening. So when we people, when we see people that just restrict their diet to just meat, you know, generally they all get healthier for the vast majority of them. They, they, their blood pressure normalizes, their hemoglobin A1C normalizes, their, you know, inflammatory markers normalize, you know, their, their clinical symptoms, which is, in my mind, the most important thing. Those things all get better. And so, you know, I think, you know, I think it's very good nutrition. You know, I think, you, not to oversimplify things, but I, I think we overcomplicate nutrition sometimes. I think when we look at you know, what you and I and every other human on the planet is made out of, we're just made out of animal tissue. I mean, we're animal fat and animal protein by the most part with, with some, you know, a few, few, uh, 
you know, salts and micronutrients thrown in. But I mean, you pretty much most efficient way to get that, in my view, is just eat the same thing. You know, you can get some of that stuff from plants, but it's, a, you know, they tend to be less bioavailable. It comes with some, sometimes some uh, chemicals that, that don't do us well. Some of the, you know, things like fiber and anti-nutrients, just, they're just harder to, to digest. And so I think a lot of people that uh, take this up, you know, I, you know, it's, it, until you do it, it's hard to experience that. But, you know, I, I think if you've been following me on Twitter, you're seeing, you know, what I see every day, just hundreds and hundreds of people constantly saying how much better their health has gotten. And I, I'm in contact with literally thousands of them. Yeah, I mean, so it's, 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 it's interesting and, and deserves further study. And that's what I'm attempting to try to facilitate, you know. It's really interesting because, I mean, I know going back 100 years almost, I mean, you know, Vilmer Stefansson, who spent so much time he living up with the Inuit in Canada, and, you know, they're eating, what, 70 80% fat, mainly from things like seal and caribou, um, and they totally prize the fat, but, you know, he found no incidence of really heart disease or diabetes, and he actually spent a year in a hospital uh, in New York uh, eating nothing but meat. And I think um, I had Nina Teicholz on the show last year, and she'd mentioned they'd produce something like maybe six... Um, papers out of this which you know never really made it into the mainstream but it's uh it's it's fascinating stuff and if we if you know if we keep on this sort of evolutionary uh perspective are there any traditional populations who ate nothing but meat or you know majority meat i think you know maasai and the Inuit are sort of the first that come to mind but yeah i mean there's other there you know there's other you know polar groups you know uh, you know you look at you know like the sami you know uh so you know there's some of the some of the yeah i think that I can't remember the names of. They're so up in yep, up in you know Siberia and Russia and all these Arctic up, you know where they don't really have a choice. But I mean they have sure. done well. Uh, you know the Maasai. There's some other than the Nilotic African people that primarily ate that way. I think like the Watusi and some of these other folks were. You know meat was a huge part of their diet. You know the Gauchos down in Argentina or another group, the Plains Indians. You know traditionally they they had a heavily you know buffalo-based diet you know Cheyenne Indians in particular obviously you know probably some of the you know some of the trap the the, the Cree you know up in Canada you know they they, they, they obviously uh, you know spent a lot of their time eating that stuff it's not that they were you know, 100% meat based but I think these people largely were one of the one of the criticisms that I've seen is you know a lot of the when they talk about the Inuit you know they talk about their life expectancy you know they, they you know they live maybe to 60 or 70 and there's people that live longer than them but one of the things that people forget is that when we compare their population and their standard of living and their socioeconomic status, and that's one of the biggest predictors of life expectancy. You know, Absolutely. If you live in a rich country, you're going to live longer. If you live in, if you live in, you know, affluent areas of Canada, if you live in, uh, you know, Monaco or uh, Switzerland, you know, life expectancy is just good. You know, that's that's a thing. But when you take these people that are living on the fringes of society, like the Inuit are. And you compare them to equally, um, you know, people in their in their same social situation, like people in, in other countries, like parts of uh, you know Africa or or Asia, Bangladesh, stuff like that. The the Inuit do far better with life expectancy. So I know one of the knock is they, they you know they live to sixty or seventy, but again, you have to take in you know those other things as well. Absolutely, and you know if someone's about to kick off on uh, you know a zero carb all meat diet. Are there any, you know, micronutrient factors or, you know, from your point of view, you know, what would a meat only diet theoretically maybe predispose someone to any kind of deficiencies? What have your observations been? Yeah, I think the biggest thing we see is probably, um, you know, probably mineral uh, issues with, with salts and electro, you know, electrolytes. I think people, I think the same thing when people go on a ketogenic diet, you know, there's a shift in, uh, you know, how, how, how well our kidneys handle Handle, handle electrolytes, you know, you kind of lose some of that. And so I think initially some people, until they reach homeostasis, may need to supplement uh, with salts. Not everybody has to do that. You know, I think, you know, again, depending on your activity levels, you know, as someone who exercises quite a bit, I tend to, you know, liberally use salt with that. People that have underlying nutrient deficiencies, and I, and I would argue that even obesity is basically a, is basically just malnutrition. You know, it's people that are for sure consuming adequate calories, but they're undernourished as far as the nutrients they need. And so, I think a lot of people come into this diet or any other diet starting off, you know, with you know, with in a deep hole as far as nutrition is concerned. And so, some people might find that you know, eating organ meats and and and, and some supplements can be helpful initially. I think long term, though. Um, and what I'm what I'm seeing is it, most people end up not needing to continue those things. And I think one of the things that we uh, 
we kind of know about it. It's a little bit in the literature, but we don't really recognize is that the what everybody looks at is the RDA requirements are um, skewed based on a population that eats carbohydrates. And we know that carbohydrate metabolism, a lot of the cofactors that are required to make that system run are in the diet. And when you're not utilizing a carbohydrate metabolism, you know, your requirements for certain nutrients just go down. You know, things like manganese and magnesium come to mind in particular. Um, possibly vitamin D has a role in there too. Uh, vitamin C, which, you know, you know, people ask me why I don't have scurvy because, you know, on the paper, meat has none, you know, basically none. Although it's kind of interesting, the USDA never tested meat for vitamin C. They just assumed it was none. And independent labs basically have shown that, uh, and this is something that Amber O'Hearn, who goes by Keto Carnivore on Twitter, has kind of unearthed, is that meat, you know, about a pound of meat has about 10, uh, 10 milligrams of vitamin C. And that's enough to, to keep you going. Um, yeah, it's enough to keep... Uh, you know, keep you out of having scurvy. And so I'm, you know, I'm eating much more than that. And, uh, you know, so I don't have any issue with that. But I think, you know, like I said, if you have a, you know, if you had a gastric bypass, perhaps, you know, there's some people that, uh, you know, they come to a diet after a gastric bypass and uh, they, they're, they're going to have difficulties absorbing nutrients. So you might have to supplement in that situation. Yeah, I had uh, Dr. James DeNicola Antonio on last year and talking all about salt. And of course, yeah, processed diets being such a big factor in, uh, the excessive intake of processed salt in folks and increasing the requirements for a lot of micronutrients. So it's interesting what you said. If yeah, if you if we're cutting out all these processed foods and a lot of these requirements could definitely be uh, potentially shifting downwards, right? Well, I think that's what we're finding. That would that's what makes sense to me, you know, because I, I you know, like I said, you know, they're, they're, having seen thousands of these people that have done this for for long periods of time, they're, they're not getting these nutrient deficiencies, and so you have to. You know, you have to be able to explain that explanation. You know, if, if I wasn't hitting my requirements for vitamin C, then I would have scurvy. And, you know, certainly I would have it long before a year was up. You know, what happened with, you know, the sailors that everybody looks at, you know, they were eating dried meats and they were eating a bunch of carbohydrate, you know, hardtack is what they would call that. And so that was their diet. And so they probably increased their requirement for vitamin C. And, you know, the dried meat wasn't supplying it. So you have to have fresh meat. It doesn't have to be freshly killed. It just has to be not basically not dried and so that's where you get around uh developing scurvy with that for sure and i think another one for people listening in who are you know trying to make a change improve their health uh, maybe even on the athletic side is the the whole cholesterol saturated fat story obviously increasing their animal protein intake now we know a lot of this has been uh, debunked but what would your you know how would you inform folks when you say hey we're gonna you know go nothing but red meat for a month you know what have you noticed in terms of impacts on lipid panels or or saturated fat intake. Yeah, I think that's very, you know, that is interesting, you know, because for long, for a long time we've sort of, you know, equated red meat, saturated fat, and cholesterol as a driver of, you know, high cholesterol in the bloodstream, which was then associated with heart disease. Again, as we're seeing a number of these studies coming out now showing that that, that association really hasn't held up well, and there's better markers for disease you know if you're looking at lipids things like triglycerides and, and hdl cholesterol probably better markers than ldl and, and total cholesterol so you have to take it in context you know the very interesting thing about this is a guy named dave feldman uh, also on twitter he's we're doing these experiments and he did just in fact yesterday he showed that he could drop his ldl by over 100 points in a week which you know just by you know change the amount of calories in his diet Basically, so what we're seeing is, you know, those markers for disease are highly, highly dynamic. And so if you go to your doctor and your LDL cholesterol is 180 and he says, hey, we need to put you on a statin, you could go in a week later and it could be 102. And he would say, good job, you're doing great. So the whole cholesterol is tied to disease is, is probably, you know, one, it's associationally or poor association, but two, it's sure. so incredibly variable that you could basically make your cholesterol be whatever you want based on what you've eaten in the last couple of days, which I think to me is you know, groundbreaking. I mean, I think they've known about the dynamic nature of cholesterol for many years, but it's not really come to light. People have never uh, paid any attention to that. You know, so we've, we've had this sort of paradigm where, you know, you go to your doctor, your cholesterol is high. He says, go on a low-fat diet or we're going to give you this drug. And what's truly happening is, you know, it's, it's just what you did in the last couple of days, which affects that cholesterol. And it's not, it doesn't stay the same day in and day out. So it's a, it's kind of a shame we have, you know, there are 
you know, as many people have heart attacks with normal cholesterol as anyone else. Uh, you know, so it's it's and yeah, low it's cholesterol for that way. matter as well as you mentioned. I mean, yeah, low cholesterol levels, just as many heart attacks. It's uh, I think places like Spain as well have the highest red meat intake in Europe, and they've got the least amount of cardiovascular disease. Same with uh, in in Asia. So it's, as you mentioned, I mean, it's just uh, um, such a associate bias there with just red meat consumption and cardiovascular health. Um, now, what about fiber? That's another one that I think people are going to ask about, which is you know fiber sure. intake, the microbiome, sure. such a hot topic, gut microbiota. How does uh, zero-carb meat-only diet impact the gut? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think you have to look at what fiber su- is supposed to do. You know, and I, you know there's, a, there's a number of, you know, sort of, sort of uh, uh, benefits that, that, are, that are attributed to fiber. And I think, you know, one of them is that it can potentially lower your cholesterol. There's been some studies showing that, you know, cellular fiber may have an impact in lowering cholesterol. That's probably true to some degree. But again, in the context of what does cholesterol even mean, you know, what, what does lower cholesterol do for you? We're not, I'm not convinced that that makes much of a difference. So I don't think there's really any great benefit for eating fiber in that case. The other, the other uh, benefit is if you eat fiber, you know, with, you know, like, well, let's use an apple as an example. If you eat an apple, by itself, you're going to get less of a glucose spike than if you drank apple juice. You know, so the fiber can kind of mitigate that glucose spike. In the context of a zero carb diet, where you're taking in basically no sugar, again, that, that's a, that's a point, pointless benefit. Um, the other thing is people talk about, um, you know, fiber helping regulate, you know, your bowel function. You know, it's and and what I will tell you is the people that have done this for you know several months or more will almost universally tell you that their bowel function and their their digestion is the best it's ever been in their life you know they they don't have any more bloating or gas or constipation or anything like that it just runs well i mean i haven't had fiber in over a year and i have a regular easy bowel movement pretty much every day without difficulty uh there's been some studies out there that have that have been shown that you know people that that have you know chronic constipation that will improve dramatically on a on a zero fiber diet uh there are studies out there that looked at you know, colonoscopies on patients that, um, you know, they, they compared fiber in the diet and they found that people with the greatest amount of fiber had the greatest number of diverticula. Uh, diverticula are what predispose you to a condition called diverticulitis. And so I don't think that's really clear on that. The other thing is about the microbiome. You know, a lot of people talk about you need to have fiber uh, so that the bacteria in your gut uh, will not eat mucus and predispose you to injury due to bacteria. Now, first of all, I don't think we're, I think we are far, far away from determining what actually is a, a, a healthy microbiome. I don't think you can prescribe someone's health or, or describe someone's health strictly based on their microbiome. I think that is, we're, we just don't know enough about that yet. But one, one of the things that many people will note with fiber, you know, if you put somebody on a high fiber diet, a lot of people will experience gastrointestinal distress, bloating, pain, cramping, and all those things. And one of the reasons that is is because there's a lot of people that believe that fiber is actually pro-inflammatory to the to the lining of the lining of the gut. You know, you see people with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, and irritable bowel syndrome that when you dramatically drop their fiber intake, their gastrointestinal intestinal health improves tremendously. And so one of the things about mucus, you know, if we look at mucus production in our body, it is there to um, protect delicate surfaces. You know, like if you look at it in the lungs for a day. You know, if you if you're a smoker or you're exposed to a lot of pollution or you get a, you know, a respiratory virus, you're going to produce a lot of low, mucus in your lungs. That's because the lung is trying to protect its surfaces, and so it produces mucus. The same thing is happening in the gastrointestinal tract. You know, I think fiber is fairly irritating to people, to many people, and so what we're doing is we're producing mucus to kind of protect the the gastrointestinal tract from the fiber. And so, you know, so the, so, the, so the theory goes that if you eat more fiber, you're going to make more bacteria that won't eat your mucus. Well, the, the, you can just say, why don't I don't eat the fiber, and then I don't need as much mucus, and then the bacteria become irrelevant. And I think, you know, I think I've seen some people that have submitted their microbiome results on a zero-carb diet. And, you know, what I've seen so far, and again, it's only a few, few cases, but it's been basically a healthy, diverse microbiome. And so I, I, I don't. Again, I think it's context dependent. I think fiber, if your diet is, you know, high in, you know, processed, uh, refined grains and sugar, then, then fiber is probably, in that context, beneficial. But I think in the context of a, you know, an all meat diet, it's it's probably a minimal to no benefit. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting topic. I mean, um, I see a lot of patients with digestive dysfunction and, and irritable bowel syndrome, and and you're you're right in the sense that when we when we trim the diet, when we when we reduce fiber for these folks, I mean the the symptoms get a lot better. Um, definitely overweight, obese, uh, a lot of abdominal adiposity. Same idea. I mean, this this notion we kind of use that reductionist approach of if you know again a lot of these studies in the Maasai and whatnot have such high fiber intakes that we 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 associate the fact that their microbiome is is so great because of simply just the fiber versus the lack of all that other processed food. So I'm amazed at how trimming can be really effective. So I was just curious to see what you've been seeing. So that's interesting. Now, I, I do see folks, if they trim for too long, though, they, they tend to experience some 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 difficulties. Do you think that's because they're kind of halfway between, um, you know, a, a really, you know, all meat, zero carb, no no processed food diet versus, you know, where they might still include some in their diet? Yeah, you know, so? I think, you know, I think it's, it's again, you know, I think there are, you know, I think there are a number of uh, reasons why certain foods affect us. You know, I, you know, we, we like to talk about phytonutrients and all the wonderful chemicals and polyphenols and other things that are in plants. But then we sort of don't talk about the oxalates and the salicylates and, the, you know, the, the, the cyanides and some of the other stuff that, that may have a negative impact on people. It's not to say that. It affects everyone. I, you know, what I think is that we probably, you know, if we go back evolution, you know, back in a, to a, taking an evolutionary approach, you know, I think at some point when humans sort of diverged on the genetic, you know, or the evolutionary tree away from, you know, the other animals that became, you know, chimpanzees and the other, you know, apes and stuff like that, you know, we, we developed the capacity to, uh, you know, we learned how to hunt. We got much better at hunting. We, we, we depended on you know, animal protein, animal fat for most of our diet, our, our anatomy changed significantly. You know, if we look at our capacity just to throw, you know, the reason humans can throw really well as compared to another primate is because we learned how to hunt, you know, we learned how to throw things. Um, you know, our brain size developed, our gut got much smaller relative to, a, you know, a chimpanzee or, a, or, you know, an orangutan or another similar, similar animal. You know, our colon shrank tremendously. Uh, so I think, you know, there was periods of times where we heavily depended on animal protein and we got, and it's very efficient. You know, if you think about it, despite what, what sort of the propaganda is, that, that meat is really well digested by our digestive system. We're well, we're well set up to do that. Our gastric pH is 1.5. You know, it's, it ranges among the lowest of any animal on the planet. You know, it's on par with other basically scavenger animals, you know, things like hyenas and vultures that, 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 you know, basically eat leftover meat. That's probably how humans started out. We probably, or, you know, maybe Australopithecus, you know, these early animals that became humans later. Uh, we probably followed predators around, and when they got done eating, you know, whatever they ate, when they made the big kill, we went in and, and, and ate up, you know, cleaned up the scraps. It's probably, and there's some pretty good evidence to show that. There's some, you know, some uh, researchers in Africa that have looked at that, they follow lions around and they, they've watched what they leave behind. And they find that they leave about 10 to 20 kilos of meat behind, which is quite a bit of meat, you know, like on wow. a zebra. So it's very plausible that an animal can come in there. And, and, and humans at that time probably went in there and scavenged that. And that's why we developed this really low pH, because we were probably exposed to a lot of, you know, pathogens. You know, if, if, if meat's been sitting out for a while, obviously we know bacteria are going to uh, land on there, sure. so we've got to deal with that. So the animals, there's two two classes of animals that do that: scavenger animals, and then rabbits. Rabbits eat their own feces, and so <laughs> so rabbits also have a low pH. But but most of the other animals, even other primates, you know, most chimpanzees and and other apes, their pH tends to be about three to four, whereas ours is 1.5. So we are heavily heavily set up to be meat eaters. You know, we can look at ileostomy patients, where you can look at what makes it, you know through the small intestine and when you when you give those patients meat it's almost completely absorbed there's almost nothing left and so uh you know it's very good nutrition and i think you know like i said i think our anatomy is well suited for that and i think you know we can get some nutrition out of eating plants we've been doing that for a thousand years we're obviously omnivores i mean that was a survival strategy it's you know you know fortunately we retain that capacity but i think that a lot of people find, you know, I mean, there's only one, one way to find out is to do it. And I think the people that do it are finding this out that they, they function very well on a highly carnivorous diet. And I think that's true for most people. It helps with uh, health issues from what I've seen. And quite honestly, from, from an athletic standpoint, I know you're involved with the Canadian uh, basketball stuff. And I think uh, what I'm seeing more and more now, since since I've gone out here and done this and been very public about it, I've seen a lot more athletes that are taking this up. And they're reporting to me that, you know, they're seeing pretty significant strength gains. Their recovery is very good. 
uh, you know, their their just overall performance is getting better and better, which I think is is, is very interesting. I think it's, you know, I, you know, I think you know, obviously there's some benefits from being fat adapted, you know, as far as uh, athletic performance and, and, and that stuff. But I think this this goes a little bit beyond that. I think the, uh, you know, what's in meat, you know, carnitin or carnison, you know, creatine, you know, high, high quality protein, uh, iron, you know, all the, all the other micronutrients which are highly bioavailable. I think results in, you know, just a better, you know, better overall nutritional package. And obviously nutrition is very important in, in both health and in performance. I mean, definitely. Uh, I mean, you very well said in terms of just being a superfood and, you know, the juices even containing lots of magnesium. And it's definitely something we emphasize, you know, grass-fed wild sources as best we can at Canada Basketball. But if we circle back on, you, on your front athletic performance-wise, you know, well, how was the transition for you? Was it sort of seamless as you moved towards sort of a zero carb approach? Was there an adaptation period for you? Yeah, I think that uh, you know, like I said, I'd already been on a ketogenic diet for about two years, and so you know, I think for me, athletically, it took about six months to you know really reap the benefits athletically on a ketogenic diet. I initially took a hit, uh, then kind of you know leveled out for a while, then I started to to started to make progress again. But when I went on a zero carb diet, coming from a ketogenic background. I probably took another hit, which took me about, I'd say about two months athletically to recover from. And then I started noticing pretty dramatic improvements in, in strength. You know, I've been, you know, Mark, I've been doing this for almost 40 years. For right? sure. I'm not, I'm not a rookie. <laughs> yeah, you know, you definitely. get these newbie games where, where, you know, anything you do is going to change. But I've, you know, I've been at it for 40 years training hard. and uh, In a lot of different realms I, as well, right? What's that? In a lot of different areas as well, not just one. Yeah, different sports. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty meticulous in how I train. You know, I didn't really change my style of training at all. Uh, but I, I, I noted, you know, again, I noted about an 8% increase in, in power production, which, you know, at, at the level I was already at is pretty significant. You know, I don't I don't take drugs, but, you know, from, from what I know, I know people that take steroids tend to see, you know, a 10%, maybe even as high as a 15% improvement in their you know, strength levels. Um, and so for me to see an 8% increase, you know, it was, was pretty significant in my view. And, and so it's allowed me to, you know, sort of jump ahead of my peers quite, quite a bit. Yeah. It's interesting too, that, um, a lot of the high intensity intervals are, have been shown, you know, getting that glycogen in the stores down is a great way to, to facilitate a, a quicker adaptation to whether it's keto or obviously very low or zero carb approach would be beneficial. So that's sounds like it's been working for you as well. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the knocks is, you know, people will say you have to have carbohydrates to do glycolytic stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know how familiar you are with, you know, with your athletes if they use the concept, the concept to stuff. But, you know, the distance I'm doing, you know, typically uh, 500 meters or so, that's about a minute, you know, 15. You know, for most people, about a minute 30 if they're in fairly decent shape. For sure. Um, that's, that's a good that's hockey really shift up here in Canada. That's What's that? So it's, not, it's a good hockey shift up here in Canada. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a glycolytic, uh, you know, that's a very glycolytic time period. You know, it's 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 you know anaerobic glycolysis, but I mean it's, uh, you know, you you can use a lot of, a lot of glycogen. And, and I'll do repeats where I'll I'll do hundred meter sprints, you know, all out, and I'll repeat them, you know, twenty times, in, in, you know, every two minutes, and and do fine with that stuff. And so, I think you're you know you just have to adapt to whatever, you know, what I think your body is able to adapt to that. You know, it's not like I'm not making any glucose at all. You know, despite the fact that I'm not eating carbohydrates, I still have plenty of blood glucose. Um, you know, I still I still have glycogen. You know, it's not like that doesn't happen. Your body will adapt to that. Now, I probably utilize more fat at a higher intensity than, than other people would. But once I hit at those top levels, I, I can tap into my glycogen, I think, just fine. I think that's what's clearly happening. But I do think that as you, and you may, again, I don't know what your athletes are doing, but I, I think you'll find that people as a, you know, tend to use fat more often they, it tends to beat them up a little less i think there's you know when you're running high levels of glucose all the time or high levels of glycogen uh you, you know that's probably creating a little more oxidative st- stress and i think it's a little more difficult to recover from um so i'm finding that my recovery is very good and that's what other people are, are also finding on this that their recovery is 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 improved and i think you just don't beat yourself up as much despite the fact that you're training hard yeah, I mean, I definitely get the full gamut of, of folks who are doing ultra marathons and, and fully keto, fat adapted to to highly glycolytic sports where, you know, carbohydrate consumption is pretty darn high. So, you know, if I could play devil's advocate here just for a minute, I'm sure a lot of sports scientists and researchers would wonder, you know, have you attempted to maybe add some simple carbs right before any of your rowing attempts? 
um, you know, what are the effects there? What do you think might happen if you did add just a little bit in yeah. before you actually train? Sure. I, you know, I, you know, I, I did that stuff more when I was doing ketogenic. You know, I did, I did, you know, different variations of the ketogenic diet. I, you know, cyclic ketogenic diet where I would do a carb load once a week. I would do the carb backloading. You know, at the, at the, you know, at night, and or and then I would do a targeted ketogenic diet where I would take in a little bit of simple carbs, often mixed with MCT. While I was doing that for a while, and I, you know, I, I. I didn't, you know, I didn't notice it. I couldn't objectively get a, a real benefit from that. You know, the, with the rowing machine, you know, like the concept too is very good at giving direct feedback. You know, sure. you produce the wattage or you don't. And so I didn't, I couldn't see a significant difference um, in that. You know, the thing that I did notice, you know, particularly with the big carb loads, is I just felt really bad. You know, I think it was yeah. one of those things where you're. You know, you're transitioning. You know, you're using. You're not using carbs, and you're, then you're you're hitting your system with a big carb load. And I think that was, um, for me, upsetting to my system. I, I had a lot of gastrointestinal distress, and so I, I just didn't feel good. I initially I got excited. I remember when I first started doing the cyclic ketogenic diet, I was like, oh, cool, I get to eat all this, you know, carbohydrate food, and it, it was it was pretty cool for about the first two weeks. And I started to dread it because it was just hard to eat, and I just didn't feel very good. So, but I but I do think that probably. You know, um, you know the, the the targeted approach is probably uh, more interesting, and it, it may have an effect. You know, I, I, maybe I'll play with that again this year. I have been trying. You know, I know, I know you mentioned James and uh, uh, Nicola Antonio recently. And I've been trying a little bit with salt loading. I know he's an advocate of that. You know, so basically, I think the theory is you, you know, you dose yourself with a with a you know amount of salt. You know, a little teaspoon of salt before you you know you train you know, put some water in that that potentially will expand your blood volume you know obviously expand the blood volume and the muscles is, is potentially a good thing and so for sure I'm trying with that so i'm not i'm not opposed to experimenting again i you know i you know right now um you know i'm, I'm still getting better and faster you know, just, just, <laughs> that's the name of the game yeah. that's the one thing in performance is that yeah. it's the only thing that matters right so i mean yeah i mean it's, it's the end result and you know like i said yesterday i hit another p i've hit prs Three days in a row. You know, in, you know, like I said, I'm I'm just interested to keep going. Uh, but yeah, I think that's. I think there may be some merit in that. You know, I think. Uh, you know, I think one of the issues is. You know, obviously carbohydrates are a performance can be a performance enhancer. Clearly, it has been for a lot of people. The question is how much, how often, when does it become a negative? You know, we see a lot of athletes that. Uh, you know. You know, they, 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 they run on Gatorade or, you know, they're, they're just constantly, you know, putting this, this, this sugar in their mouth. And, and, you know, you see them particularly when they retire, you know, they get out of their sports, they, they have issues with that. I don't, you know, I wonder, Absolutely, the other thing yeah. I wonder about is, you know, do these diets uh, impact our tissue quality? You know, we see, you know, injury rates. One thing would be interesting, uh, maybe you guys in Canada can look at that is, you know, there's something called advanced glycation end products, and I think that's a result of, of diet. And I think, uh, you know, high, a high sugar diet probably promotes that. And so I also think it probably affects the tissues and makes them more susceptible to injury. So it might be interesting to, you know, scan people for that stuff. You know, maybe maybe you can look at athletes that have had ACL injuries and, uh, you know, get an age score on them. You know, there's, there's skin autofluorescence readers that, that are out there that are available that I think give you a pretty good, you know, reliable estimate of what you're you know how many advanced glycation end products you're dealing with in your tissues and so that that might be just from academic curiosity might be interesting to see comparing athletes are injured versus non-injured athletes you know or, or you know, see if that predisposes them to injury absolutely i mean that's definitely fascinating stuff and you know from the longevity front i can attest as well in clinic guys in mid to late 30s definitely 40s 50s whether they're trying to add more muscle or whether they're competing in more endurance bouts, if they're holding on to too much weight and their diet's higher and especially simple carbs and processed carbs are too many calories, I mean, definitely the tissue quality, the discomfort, the inflammation, these are things that are just through the roof. And, um, you know, getting a reduction there almost all across the board always ends up with, uh, you know, superior outcomes in terms of inflammation, HA1Cs, all these types of things. So I'm curious, you know, for you as an orthopedic surgeon, I mean, you know, what types of surgeries would sort of dominate your day? I know obviously, you know, type two diabetes is such a huge issue these days, you know, foot amputations, or was it more joint specific stuff? Um, what were you, what did you yeah, see? I think, yeah, Mark, I think, you know, one of the reasons I went into orthopedics is because I felt it was, it was, a, it was a good field where you could make a direct impact. You know, you could do a surgery, rid somebody of a disease. 
as compared to like primary care where you're constantly battling metabolic syndrome all day long and, and, and the weapons you had to battle it with are just basically you know certain certain medications and then, and then you kind of felt all the patients were non-compliant but what I what I discovered as I got farther in my career in orthopedics is much of what I was battling was just the same stuff I mean it was just the musculoskeletal um, manifestations of metabolic disease so I think arthritis in many cases is is a problem with you know metabolic disease I think it's systemic inflammation that causes um, you know joint dysfunction or tendinopathy and things like that and I think one of the things we focus on in orthopedics are the mechanical the biomechanics but I think the biology and the inflammation and the nutrition probably precede that so I think what's happening in an arthritic joint is you're having this underlying uh, biology that's 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 a problem and I think that's coming from largely from diet and I think once that sort of compromises there then the mechanical factors take over but I think what we do when you replace someone's knee you treat the mechanical issue you may be able to align the joint better you're obviously recovered the surface but the biology is still there and so what will happen is you know uh, you you may be the hero for the day because you you fix that one joint but you know guess what's going to happen next year they're going to come back for their other knee replacement or gotcha. their, you know their rotator cuff tear and all these things that 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 we commonly see all this, you know, tissue pathology, you know, tendonitis, probably some of the peripheral neuropathies are probably originating as just manifestations of every other disease, you know, like, like we see with diabetes and hypertension and dementia and, you know, obesity. It's all probably circles back to the same thing. It's probably the same mechanism that, that underpins all these things. So I think if we don't address that, and that's one of the things that I regret about the field of orthopedics is there's no, almost no, uh, research or guidance on adjusting diet to to help with these conditions it's almost if it doesn't exist you know the first step is to throw in a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and physical therapy uh you know tell them to reduce their, their activity you might tell them to weight lose weight but there's no guidance on how to do that and then then, then it starts going into cortisone injections you know arthroscopies and then finally you know bigger surgeries and so the the, the whole it's step one for almost everybody that comes in with a chronic orthopedic condition should be what are you eating how can you fix your diet that's what i would you know that's that's where i would start and you you know and i when i was doing that i was eliminating you know people that need you know we would normally would say you're gonna have to have surgery i've had people that were just no longer became surgical candidates because their symptoms went away which i think is very powerful i think the more people were to you know investigate that and, and you know whether it's a an all meat diet or a paleo diet or a low carb diet or even a vegetarian diet you know i think that would be the first line of defense that people should investigate i personally my personal experience shows that uh, very low carb carbohydrate diets and and particularly you know an all meat diet is is one of the most effective tools in in those type of situations well it's a great uh great message to be to be sounding out to everyone and just that nutrition first approach for 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 joint health and everything else is, is fantastic and i've you know been sharing a lot of the um, studies and stuff that you've been putting out on Twitter because I know a lot of the, the orthos and docs here around Toronto is definitely uh, catching their attention. So I really appreciate you doing that. And of course, I want to respect your time here as well, Sean. So last question for you, the question that I'm asking all the guests this season on the podcast is all about the fundamentals or the big rocks as I like to call them. So, you know, with respect to a meat only or a zero carb diet, what's what's a piece of advice that you'd give folks or maybe jumping into this? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, you know, um, you know, one, you have to eat enough. I think a lot of people that, that go into this, they, they tend to undereat. It's very satiating. And I think people, the people that I've seen that have not been able to stick with it, they they, they, they just tend to undereat. And so what happens is they get cravings for other food or they, they, they end up being fairly lethargic. You know, your system has to transition to a new source of fuel, basically. Anytime you change a diet, you know, it takes your body while to on-ramp and off-ramp different different enzymes and different metabolic processes so that takes a bit of time so you have to ensure you're getting enough nutrition so you're not you know suddenly wanting to binge on a bag of potato chips or something like that the other thing is you know you got to learn how to cook i mean i think that's a that's a skill that everybody needs regardless of what your diet is you know if you learn how to you know make a good steak you're going to enjoy it a lot better you know there's you, you know use some seasonings use some different flavors get a little variety at the beginning that's what i did some people will find that, that uh, you know, doing a couple of days here and there is, is an easier way to do it. For some, some people, you know, do better just taking all temptation out. You know, it's kind of like looking at a person that's a, a smoker and saying, okay, we're going to have you quit smoking, but we want you to, you know, smoke two or three cigarettes a day. 
that that strategy can be a losing strategy for a lot of people. So some people just do better, particularly if they're struggling with, you know, just really hard time, you know, staying away from, you know, you know food addictions. Basically, I think we're, I think that's a real thing. I think people have food addictions. I think the the, the food companies know that and they, they they design their foods so that they are very addictive and so um you know so some people just cold turkey works best but uh you know i think you also have to pay attention to the other things get enough you know enough rest you know exercise i think is is is, is, is key uh so i think you have, you have to bring all those things into balance long term to make any 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 particular diet successful Awesome, Sean. Really appreciate you taking the time out today. Where can people keep up with all the great stuff you're putting out? Where can people jump into the program that you've uh, just kickstarted as well? Yeah, so, um, you know, my, my Twitter, I'm fairly active, sbakermd. Uh, my Instagram has a lot of, you know, I can I can kind of go a little uh, longer posts there. So it's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Uh, we've started a Facebook group for World Carnival Month, January. We've got few thousand people participating so the world carnival world carnival month facebook group just type in world carnival month you'll find it um i've I've got a system where i'm training people i'm training some you know people that are trying to get healthier and and implement the diet that's carnivore training system.com uh people that are participating in the study because we're trying to get as much data as possible to try to legitimize this uh so n equals many.com and track-well.com is a tool we're using to, to collect data. So we're hoping to, you know, turn these anecdotes into 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 more formalized data so we can start to present that and show what I'm seeing, which is basically people getting healthier and their you know, their labs are, are, are coming back, you know, basically pretty darn good overall. So that's that's my stuff right now. Fantastic. Well, I'll definitely include all those links uh, with the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for coming on, Sean. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, uh, we'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes, subscribe, and give us some feedback there as well. Fantastic. Have a great weekend, everyone, and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.